another episode of Crime Travel in Toledo, Ohio with Kelly Amstutz, the genealogy investigator. I'm really excited to be here with you guys today. I have a really special treat. Um, I don't know how many of you have started spooky season, but I know that it's alive and well in our house right now. So I thought it would be kind of fun to tell a ghost story. Um, I'm going to take us back to the 12th of May of 1882. I have a little tale that was published in the Sydney Journal, and it's called Jock Brown's Ghost. It's by a Scottish lawyer. I kid you not. <laughs> so without further ado, it starts off with a little poem, um, and then we'll get into the story. So we're going to start off with In Re Spring, written by a lawyer's office. Whereas a sun-dry boughs and spray, now divers' birds are heard to sing. And sun-dry flowers, their heads upraise, hail to the coming on of spring. The song of the said birds arouse the memory of our youthful hours, as young and green as the said boughs, as fresh and fair as the said flowers. The birds aforesaid, happy pairs, love miss the aforesaid boughs enshrined. In household nests themselves, their heirs, administrators, and assigned. O busiest term of Cupid's court, when tender plaintiff's actions bring, seasons of frolic and of sport, hail as aforesaid coming spring. So um, for the younger generation that is listening today, um, you can see that we have a lot of proper English terms, um, and that is going to be said for the entire story. So um, I'm going to bring it to you as it's presented. Um, I don't really want to change anything, so... <laughs> It'll all make sense, I promise, but some of the words are a little funky, and I am just pre-warning you. So let's go ahead and get started with Jack Brown's Ghost by a Scottish lawyer. Some five or six miles from the circuit town in the north, in which by some practices, there's a village where I may name Heather Howe. As a matter of fact, the commodity close to the village, a long piece of rocky ground covered with fine grass and firs, is so named by the inhabitants. And as it was on this lone common and near the old quarry hole that Jack Brown's ghost appeared, the name is not so very far-fetched. Possibly the appearing and disappearing of the ghost, for it did both, would never have led to a law case had it not been for its somewhat libelous statements. Even a ghost cannot be allowed to infringe the law when impunity. It is disagreeable enough for a hard-working, saucy, and thriving widow like Mysie Brown to have a peevish and ill-conditioned husband come back again in ghost form at all. But when the ghost adds to his offense by uttering statements not strictly true and calculated to damage materially those not yet a ghost, it is high time to take action. Mysie Brown, when suddenly left a widow, had not sat down to wring her hands and shake her head. She had two banes, just children to think of and being a strong-armed energetic young woman she resolved to work for them single-handed as their father had formerly done the village was badly supplied with milk at a dear rate by a neighboring farm Mysie took it in the position at a glance and bought a cow went round the village canvassing for customers and in a week had more buyers than she could supply in a short time she had three cows and with these and some other trifles made a very comfortable livelihood. Mysie was in a year or two spoken of as a prosperous woman, with a few pounds laid past, a smug house, and a good stocking. Moreover, Mysie was a jolly, open-faced woman with a free-daffing way that pleased everyone, 
and being neither old nor ugly, naturally attracted many suitors. Among those of her acquaintances whom gossip set down as suitors, none was spoken of so hopefully and decidedly as Peter Shand, the smith's hammerman. Peter mended her fences, delved her yard for her, planted her kale of potatoes, and killed her pigs. Peter, in fact, when twitted on the point, only smiled in a pleased and self-satisfying manner and never once denied the soft impeachment, thus letting the teasers know beyond a doubt that the marriage was a settled thing. Mysie, it is true, when any hint of that effect reached her ear, denied the truth of the rumor most firmly. But when was a woman's no taken under such circumstances for anything but a yes? Remember, different times. <laughs> All at once, there came a change, decisive and inexplicable. Peter went no more to the widows, but sat moping and silent at home or in the public house, while Mysie either did her own mending and delving or paid someone to do it for her. What could be the cause of the sudden change? There was to be no marriage either. Peter had plainly said so with a solemn look which implied that it was a duty he owed to society not to implement his engagement. And yet, at the same time, he stoutly insisted that there was no quarrel between him and the Sansi widow. Was there ever a village gossip who would be satisfied with an evasion like that? Everyone was quite sure something more had under, was under his words. And at length, under their subtle plying, Peter was got to admit after sundry hints at something mysterious and awful had failed to the intimation, as it was well known that Jack Brown's death had never been right, rightly explained. It was only known that Jack Brown had left his home one morning early and had never been seen or heard of since. His wife had apparently been slow to believe him dead, even though he left a letter stating that she should never see him more and only assumed widow's mornings after he had been gone for three months. The visitation darkly alluded to by Peter Shand roused some old whisperings. Peter was plied more strenuously than ever for information, and at last he admitted in the greatest confidence that he had seen a ghost, no other than the ghost of the deceased Jack Brown, whom had solemnly warned him against having anything more to do with his widow. This confidential revelation was but the first letting out of water, and gradually the circumstances of the spectral warning oozed out and assumed something like the flowing shape. It had been a Saturday night, and the hour was late, for Jack had been spending the evening with Mysie, and the time slipped by unheeded. I kissed her at the door, Peter was wont to declare with great pathos at this part of his description, and I tell you her Wadna be lang afore I want a need to leave her Abba. Little did I think it was to be my last kiss. Peter had sucked. That is, he had eaten some bread and cheese and taken one glass of whiskey with the widow, but he was perfectly sober and, moreover, perfectly free from fear of any thoughts of ghosts when he reached the commodity before mentioned. The night was cold, however, and Peter decided that a smoke for the remainder half mile would be a comfort and a luxury. So he paused to get out his pipe, only to discover that he had not a match in his possession. Just as he made the discovery a little, peevish-faced man passed him softly without looking up. There was no lights near the spot, but both moon and stars were out, and everything was as clear as day. The hammerman resolved to ask a light, and for that purpose moved after the little man, saying, It's a fine night. 
Hey, ye got a match on me? To his surprise, the figure neither halted nor responded. It moved straight on, slowly and steadily, and not in the direction Peter Shan meant to take. The man mon be deaf, was his reflection. I'll need to get a week closer, for I can a day without a light. He followed the, ma- the man up on, he followed, sorry, and made up on the slowly moving figure and repeated his greeting. This time the man appeared to hear, for he turned around towards the speaker and revealed to his startled gaze the well-remembered features of none other than Jock Brown. So unexpected was the encounter that the hammer man forgot all about his smoke and slowly stuttered out, Good gracious, Jock Brown, I thought she was dead. The ghostly visitant stared at him in evident anger, as much as to say, Well, and am I not dead? But gave no audible response. One of those awkward pauses which sometimes occur when there are no ghosts insured. Peter could fain have Peter would fain have filled it up by repeating his request for a light to his pipe, but a wholesome dread of the possible source of such a light checked the desire. Then he remembered Jack Brown's weakness for snuff, and he politely inquired, Who are ye for snuff, or by ye ken what I mean, in your new quarters? Oh, that's some tough language, right? <laughs> Plenty of rum stains to smell. A need for snuff was the uh, somewhat snappish reply. I've just come on to warn ye not to marry Mysie, the ghost abruptly added, as if to wishing to change the subject. And what for no? cried Shand in some dismay. A ghost has no need for a wife, surely. But she done with her yourself? You need set either folk against her. Pete Shan, said the ghost solemnly, marry her not, or ye rule it uh, the day of your life, and maybe a while after. Well, ye be God enough to explain yourself, said Strand, Shan, sorry, but by no means satisfied with the dogmatic command. Your warrants, that's all, replied the ghost of Jack Brown, and without another word, he moved across the commodity in the direction of the quarry hole, which was a very good place for skating or on in the winter, so long as there was no weakness on the ice, but so dangerous at other times that it had been fenced around to keep out cattle and children. I'll see what the peevish sells gang, was Shan's resolve, and he followed the ghost till the quarry hole was reached. He was but a short distance behind when the fence was reached by the ghost, and he naturally expected to see it either diverge or climb over the paling, but Jack Brown's ghost did neither. It walked right through the fence, or rather, as it seemed, the fence walked right through its vitals, and then calmly and sedately moved away down into the black pool of water, filling the quarry. Such is the force of habit and the association of ideas, however, that scarcely had the ghost thus vanished, then Shan started forward in lively horror, crying, Save us! Uh, the man's drowned! He ran up to the paling leant over it and looked down on the black surface of the water, but it showed not even a ripple on the spot into which Jack Brown's ghost had so comfortably settled itself, and then the conviction slowly settled on his mind that he had been favored with a supernatural visitation. During the meeting and interview, he had felt no vestige of fear, but now that it was over and the ghost evidently housed for the night, he shook in every limb and was altogether so overpowered that even after he got home, as his mother could testify, he was pale and trembling, 
and not at all like himself. According to his own account, Peter Shan was silenced, but not convinced by the apparition. That is, he ceased visiting Mizey, but he was not quite certain that in doing so, he was acting wisely. But the obligating ghost soon settled matters by again, waylaying him near the commodity, warning him solemnly against Mizey, concluding by saying she was a base. She was a base and black-hearted woman, clearly a libel, and then popping into the quarry hole pool as it is possible that a third appearance would have been put in by the ghost, but at this juncture, some kind friend revealed to the unsuspecting widow the cause of the strained look, looks and hints which were greeting her on every side and even affecting the sale of her dairy produce. The libels of Jack Brown's ghost, as uttered to Peter Shand in the vicinity of the quarry hole, first horrified, then enraged her. The low, mean vagabond, the scoundrel, to dare to attack me that way, she hotly exclaimed in allusion not to the ghost, but the ghost seer, honest Peter Shan. And because I tell him I want to have him or any other as long as I could work for my children myself. Find I can it was a name, but my coos, my coos, my cows, and my bit horse and furniture he was after. And I tell him, say, and turned him to the door, the sneaking coward. I'll if my ain't Jack Brown had only been spared, he'd want a dower to utter a weast against me. But a body turns against a woman the moment she loses her man. Okay. So that was some, <laughs> some tough stuff. And I apologize because I am doing my best. <laughs> so basically, she thinks that Peter was just after her fortune that she's making on her own, right? And she's saying that everything would have been fine if Jack would have still been around because they nobody in the town would have talked about any of this. Apparently, Mizey had not thought her case without a remedy for the same night while Peter Shand was quietly finishing his supper in his mother's house. Mizey stalked in at the door, scarcely waiting for the invitation to come in, which followed her knock. Peter dropped the spoon he was using and changed color the moment he met her eyes. You've been seeing Jack Brown's ghost, she inquired remarkably, at the same time producing a thick walking stick and approaching the cowering man. Yes, he stammered. And he tell you I was a base black-hearted woman, she added with the same deadly emphasis. There was no answer either in assent or dissent, and the thick stick descended and did its work most effectively, for Peter Shan was next morning too stiff and sore to go to work. He excused himself for a day by saying he had caught a cold, but apparently he as not so ill, but he could go out alone on the following night and see the ghost for the third time. This time, Shant declared, he found the ghost seated on a fence near the quarry and at once began to abuse it for the scrape into which it had brought him by making such unsupported accusations. The ghost, professing regret and being told of the beating which Shant had endured at the hands of Mysie, shuddered visibly and breathed a fervent thanksgiving that it was safe for all such troubles, and reminding the hammerman of its own warning, that if he married Mysie, he would regret the step all his life. That's a specimen of what she got, have got as her husband, said the ghost, with some show of logic, but it is nothing to what I suffered at her hands. To be sure, death to me was a joyful release, but still that didn't justify her in cruelly taking my life. Your life, cried the horrified hammerman, 
with an inward thanksgiving for the escape he had made. Do you mean to tell me you were, were murdered? Murdered in cold blood, solemnly returned the ghost. You might have guessed that by seeing me in a boot this way instead of sleeping soundly in my grave or down on a boot in my new quarters. Nobody that has dead a natural death ever comes back as a ghost. Peter, they've our glad to bid away, especially them that has been afflicted all their life like me by a wife with a tongue that the devil himself couldn't match. Well, of course, you said, Ken, observed the subdued and overawed hammerman in polite deference to his old friend. But how was the awful deed done? How did she manage to murder ye and then get rid o' the body without so much as leaving a drop of blood to tell the tale? Did I tell you I was murdered in cold blood? said the ghost with some of this earthly peevishness. Every word a ghost says has its meaning. There wasn't a drop of my blood shed, or I'm not so sure if the old scriptural command would apply to Mysie. She didn't shed my blood. She only caused it. What? What do you mean? What does that mean? Stammered Shan, with his hair creeping on his scalp. We had a bit of quarrel this morning, as usual, answered the ghost, and in the middle of that, I banged a bit of cake across the table at Maisie's face. It was dowdy and heavy, and got her a good rap on the face. Mysie with up with a jogoblin water and let bank at my head. That wasn't making you cold, it was making you hot, mildly corrected Shan. Did it interrupt me with impedient remarks, peevishly returned the ghost, or oh, back to my cold bed without telling you another thing. The jug dung me donorant, and Mysie thought I was killed, so she got a wrap and a big stain and carried me to the quarry hole and dropped me in it. Murdered in cold blood, you see, and as the ghost laid a dead and icy cold paw upon Shant's warm hand to emphasize his words, the hammerman nimbly leaped back a couple of yards in terror. You've been dead an awful time without saying a word about it, remarked the hammerman at last. Could you be given a bit hint to the police or the fiscal? Only five years, said the ghost, with the air of one who considered that they were only equal to five minutes. And who is the jaw to be brought to justice, said Shan, with some concern. She'll never be brought to justice, said the ghost, with the air of a ghost who knew. You come a meddle with her, for afore she can be taken up, ye must find my dead body. Well, could that not be done? Could we not rake the quarry and fish ye up, suggested the sympathized Shan. Fish me? Aye, that's the word, sadly rejoiced the ghost. There wasn't a scrap of my flesh left a week after I was tumbled in it. The perch made short work of me, I can tell ya. Na na, they're not God raking for me. If I had been in a clear running stream where there was nothing but dainty clean feeding crowdies, it might have been very different. Then a speak about, about fish me up. It's a word that gives me groove. Then what am I to do, helplessly inquired Shan. Here to bid as ye are, single man, said the ghost, or fell might can that. I don't know what that means. Ah, that's a right, but about the murder, I mean, said Shan anxiously. Do you mean just do nothing, promptly answered the ghost. What could you do? There's no proof that I was murdered unless the Bassoms should ever think of confessing it. And if ye were to tell only 
body ye believe such a thing, she might have the audacity to prosecute ye for little. Nah, retake my advice and do nothing. What a sensible chief like you hands off and doesn't marry her. Folks will soon guess that there's something wrong, and the truth may come out someday. With something like these words, the ghost gravely left the perch on the paling and retired, as before, to the bottom of the pool, and Peter Shan left the spot greatly agitated, and so faithlessly did he adhere to the advice of the ghost that he said nothing of the last meeting and the strange revelations until some others spoke of seeing the ghost at the same lonely spot. Whether these others really saw any apparition near the quarry hole, or only imagined they did from the stories already floating around, cannot be known, but it is certain that they truthfully and conscientiously believed that they had, and that the spectator thus encountered was the very image of the deceased Jock Brown. Some saw him flitting across the common in front of them, making no noise with the feet, and appearing to glide rather than walk, while others saw him either sitting pensively perched on the railway which surrounded the quarry hole, or quietly slipping down into his resting place in the black depths of the pool. It would be quite useless to attempt to convey any idea of the excitement which these reports, rumors, or spectators' scenes caused in the district. Everybody believed in the ghost, but the person chiefly concerned, Mysie Brown. She found herself all but ruined by the ghost and protested and stormed and shed tears all in vain in opposition to the popular idea. The ghost called all before it and the very minister of the parish, who before had been skeptical regarding apparitions, preached a sermon on spirits which showed how much he had learned since Jack Brown's ghost had visited the parish. Nor did the one ghost long have the run of the district to itself. Other ghosts, envious no doubt of this one's immense popularity, trooped into the place and titled at doors and hoisted beds and their occupants up in the middle of the night and rapped on tables and windows and rang bells with broken wires and bewitched cows as cleverly as they could have done in the sensible good old days when Mother Shipton and the witches had everything in their own hands and the blazing um, rewarded their genius. What as the accused widow to do under the circumstances? She could not starve, and to remain inactive would be to imply conscious guilt. So she brought her case to my son and asked him to get up a prosecution for little. But against whom was the charge to be preferred? Shan had no uttered no libel. It was the ghost who had declared Mysie a murderer. And the ghost, unfortunately, was beyond the jurisdiction of any court of law. This was the decision of my son and myself, but Mysie was not to be repressed. She went to the authorities and demanded to be put upon her trial. This request could not be acceded to from the simple fact that the principal witness, the ghost, had no known address and therefore could not be cited, and also because the body of the missing Jack Brown had never been found. Still, undaunted, Mysie employed men to search the pool, and then, most singularly to relate, there was found and brought up a human skull with human bones and a muddy fragment of rope attached to a heavy stone. The skull was submitted to the medical man of the district, and he at once pronounced it was not only the skull of a man, but of one about age and make of the missing Jack Brown. This discovery created an extraordinary sensation, not only in the district, but over a wide tract of the country as well. When the circumstances got into the newspapers and the case promised to be one of the most celebrated in history, something like a body being now found, 
Mizey was arrested and formally accused of the murder, and though she protested more strenuously than ever her innocence, everyone now disbelieved her and hourly expected her to make a clean breast of it by confessing the whole particulars of the crime. The case had thus been blown up steadily till it had assumed enormous and balloon-like proportions. It now seemed as if the mere prick of a pin was to make the whole collapse. Mizey was examined twice before the sheriff. I and my son attended to watch her case, but on the second occasion, the pin, which was to prick the balloon, appeared in the person of a somewhat diminutive man who stalked into the room and quietly said, Have you no kin me? Mizey screamed out and was at the side of him in a moment, clasping the peevish-faced man to her breast and crying hysterically, It's Jock! It's my Jock! My Bonnie Jock! Came home safe and sound after all. The apparition being questioned declared on his oath that he had never been dead, nor was he thrown into a quarry hole, nor was he eaten with perch, nor forced to haunt the district as a specter, but had all this time of five years quietly been working at his trade as a tailor in the distant city. He had, he admitted, quarreled with his wife before leaving, and had really left her a letter saying she should never see him more. But he did so without any thought of suicide or death in any kind in his head. What was the quarrel about, pray, inquired the sheriff with a half-amused expression of countenance, that you should form the desperate resolve to part from your wife and your children forever. Was it anything deadly? Deadly enough, sir, was the grave reply. It was just to boot my porridge, being awfully salted, over-salted. I had told her till I was tired how I liked them salted, and my telling did not good, did no good. She was salting them to please herself and gave me some tongue for by, so I saw fine we could never live together peaceably and determined to leave her for good. Still, I wouldn't like her to be hanged for killing me while I'm leaving, so I came through to explain matters. He seriously left because she oversalted his porridge, guys. Mysie and her recovered husband returned home together and there was immediate inquiry for Peter Shand, the more so as the village gravedigger now remembered that Peter had been employed in putting a lock on a vault in which was kept a number of skulls and human bones, turned up in the course of some alteration on the graveyard, and thus had probably possessed himself of the remains found in the quarry hole. Peter was found hiding in a barn loft among straw and brought forth by the villagers, and nearly made a ghost of by being ducked in the very quarry hole into which he had so often, by the aid of a lively imagination, a tongue's, a liar's tongue, and revengeful mind, seen the ghost of Jack Brown vanish, the bodily Jack Brown taking an active part and lively interest in the punishment. After the ducking, Shan disappeared from the village and the district, but Jack Brown is still here, living contently with his wife and family, and not quite so peevish as he was when younger. Do you never quarrel over the salting of your porridge now? I asked him the last time we met. See, no, I let her salt them as she likes, was his laughing reply. And when they oversalt, I just take the mare milk to them. You can, we have plenty of that now, for we've hailed 20 cows. So that is our story for tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I did. I thought it was quite funny. It's a little hard to get out of the context. I tried to change some words, though, because they, they can be a little daunting. So I apologize for my pronunciation. 
but I'm not, I mean, I am Scottish, but I, I'm not from Scotland, so I don't have the Gaelic. <laughs> but that's our story for tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope everyone has a great few coming weeks. We have Halloween um, approaching us, and we have one more podcast episode before then, so that's exciting. I'll see what I can dig up for that. As always, I thank you so much for your continued support. Um, if you're looking for a genealogist, please keep me in mind. You can visit my website at www.thegenealogyinvestigator.com. I have links all over the place. Um, but until next time, if you have a great story idea, please shoot it my way. I will talk to you in two weeks. Have a great day.